Our scripture reading for this Lord's Day morning worship is from Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 14. This is where God makes a covenant with Abraham, which even now we participate in through the covenant of grace. Genesis 17, 1 through 14. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Well, let us remain standing at this time. If you have your Bibles, I welcome you to open them this morning. Our text this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 6. However, I would like for us to begin in chapter 9, verse 24. And we're going to read all the way through chapter 10, verse 12. And as the word of God is read publicly, try to carefully track what it is that Paul is arguing through these verses, as this is going to become more apparent as we get into the sermon this morning. So this is God's word beginning with 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate to all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. 
But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we humble ourselves under the authority of your word. And we ask now that you would illumine our hearts and minds to its truthfulness. May you by your spirit apply this passage from your word to our hearts. May you grant us faith. May you grant us, Father, a stirred soul over the gospel And cause our hearts to rejoice in God our Savior. We pray all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. You know, we sometimes take for granted the fact that God, while under obligation to his own nature, is required to be just. But he is not under obligation to his own nature. To be gracious. We sometimes take for granted that when sin entered the world, God would have been wholly just, wholly justified in drawing the curtain on the entire creation project. Sending Adam, Eve, and all of the cosmos into its deserved destruction because of sin and called off the whole thing. He was under no obligation to allow history to continue. But we know that history did continue. And why did history continue? Well, thankfully, God in his eternal wisdom had chosen out of the freedom of his own will to extend grace. And therefore, human history continued because God had a plan of actually saving some of the children of Adam. He actually had a plan to extend mercy and grace that he was under no obligation to give. The Lord entered into covenant promises that guaranteed that this grace would be extended. And this covenant of grace included a salvation that could be received by faith alone. 
But God chose to administer this covenant of grace, not just in one administration. He chose to administer the covenant of grace in two administrations. The first administration of the covenant of grace, we find in what has come known to us as the Old Testament, that stretches even across the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, leading up to the resurrection of Christ. The second administration of the covenant of grace followed Jesus Christ's resurrection, an epoch in redemptive history that you and I find ourselves this day as we sit in these pews. And just as those in the first administration of the covenant of grace looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, those in the second administration of the covenant of grace look back to the Messiah that has come. And of course, we're looking forward to his return when he'll culminate the whole thing and brings an end to the second administration altogether. One covenant of grace, two administrations. And the Lord chose to give signs of this one covenant of grace. And in the first administration of the covenant of grace, he gave a sign that was appropriate to and in keeping with that particular epoch of redemptive history. And of course, the sign of the covenant of grace in the first administration was the sign of circumcision, pointing to the covenant of grace, the sign of the covenant of grace. The sign of that same covenant of grace in the second administration is the sign of baptism, a sign pointing to the same covenant of grace. Again, one covenant of grace, two administrations, two different signs appropriate to their epoch of redemptive history. This morning, there is a little covenant child that will undergo the waters of baptism. The sign of the covenant of grace in this second administration of the covenant. And while the subject of baptism is vast, and everything that can be said about baptism cannot be funneled into one single solitary sermon, it is my prayer, brothers and sisters, that as we consider these verses out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that we will learn much about baptism. Because in our text this morning, when God speaks of the people being delivered through water, he calls it a baptism. So, we're going to see as this text unfolds, I want us to consider three things. First, we're going to see the continuity of baptism. Secondly, we're going to see the blessings of baptism. And then lastly, the response of baptism. Well, let's consider the continuity of baptism. Look at our passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where it says that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized in the cloud and in the sea. Now, what is this referencing? This is not talking about anything in the New Testament. This is talking about Exodus. This is taking us all the way back to the beginning portions of the Bible where God's people were in bondage in Egypt under Pharaoh's reign. God instructed Pharaoh to let my people go, and he refused. God sent and rained down ten plagues upon the nation of Egypt and upon Pharaoh particularly. And then finally in the tenth plague, what does Pharaoh do? He agrees to release the people from bondage. We're told in Exodus chapter 13 that God's people were led by a pillar of cloud by day to protect them from the sun and a pillar of cloud by night to provide them light in the darkness. 
And Paul's use here of under the pillar of cloud in our text this morning is not so much a reference of being underneath the cloud as much as it is being led by the cloud. Indeed, that we're told that the cloud led them all the way to the edge of the Red Sea. And in Exodus chapter 14, we are told what happens. As the people of Israel are on the edge of the Red Sea, the cloud that is in front of them that led them up to the Red Sea moves and circles around behind them. And that cloud stands between the people of God and all of the Egyptian soldiers that were coming on chariots towards them. In effect, God's people were separated from the Egyptians. God drew a distinction between those who were his, that he was about to redeem through the waters of the Red Sea, and those who were his enemies, who were coming up behind them. On the one side of the pillar of cloud was God's people. On the other side of the pillar of cloud were God's enemies. And the scripture tells us that these two walls of water then were separated in the Red Sea. And only God's people made it through those waters successfully. Those who were not God's people did not make it through those waters successfully. It's very important that we grasp that. Because we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that what went on here, he says that they were baptized The people of God were baptized through the cloud and the sea. Isn't that fascinating? That the Apostle Paul, in referencing this event way back in Exodus, calls what took place there a baptism. Now there is one basic principle of baptism that I think we need to highlight here from this text before we move further. And that is that while baptism is certainly more than this, it is certainly not less than this. Baptism is a mark of distinction. Baptism is a mark of distinction. In God's making a public distinction between those who are insiders, those who are a part of his visible people, and those who are outsiders, those who are outside of his visible people, those who are not part of his visible people. There is a distinction made between those two. And that's the reason why in the Pauline epistles, as you read throughout the New Testament, you find this language of insider-outsider, insider-outsider. Why? Because God actually continues to make a distinction between those who are visibly a part of his people and those who are visibly not a part of his people. And baptism is recognized, and even in this passage, as a mark of distinction. It was through this baptism that God distinguished the people of Israel from the Egyptians. The baptism that we're going to witness here not too long from now is a mark of distinction. Let that be at the forefront of your minds. This little boy will be visibly set apart and consecrated unto God. He will be brought up, not as someone who is treated as a viper in diapers. He's not going to be treated as one who is outside the covenant, someone who's an enemy of God. 
outside of God's covenant dealings, outside of God's covenant blessings. No, he is going to be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He's going to be brought up as an insider because he is marked by God for God. There is a distinction that is made. He is marked by God for God. Hence the language he's raised in the Lord. That's covenantal language, by the way. That when one is raised in the Lord. That can't be said of outsiders. Outsiders are not raised in the Lord. That's covenantal language when it's ascribed to the family of God, a covenant family raising a covenant child. In the Lord. This is why when Paul, if you look throughout Paul's epistles, you keep bumping into what they call the household codes, where he addresses husbands, and then he addresses wives, then he addresses children, and he also addresses bond servants. Why this group? They're all part of the household. Paul thinks in terms of households. Paul addresses the churches as households. And so whenever he is addressing these children in the epistle, and he says, what does he say to the little children? He says, obey your parents, how? In the Lord. You see that language comes up again. That's covenantal language. You're to obey your parents in the Lord. Now, is he talking about 45-year-olds? You need to make sure that you obey your 90-year-old father? No. He's talking about children as children. Whether they be as as an infant like Ezra, or whether they be 10, or whether they be 16. So long as they're in the household, he's addressing all the children that are in the household. Not making a distinction between, now wait a second, Paul can't be addressing the two-year-old. He just can't be. He's got to be addressing somebody that's old enough and cognizant enough to be worthy of being in the kingdom of Christ. No. Paul is addressing the kingdom of Christ. And he's addressing the children as children. Your covenant children. You are to be raised in the Lord. You're to obey your parents in the Lord. And what does he say to the fathers? Bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of what? Of the Lord. You see that language is everywhere. This is covenantal language. Bringing them up in the Lord's nurture. The Lord's admonition. That's insider language. You see. Now, one might say, well, that's just Israel. That was only Israel that we can speak of that way. I want you to notice something in this passage that's very easy to pass over. And it's extremely profound. Look with me at the way he addresses the Corinthian church. He says here in chapter 10, he says, brethren or brothers, our fathers... Brothers, our fathers. Now, that's very strange language. You know why that's so strange? Because who's he predominantly talking to? He's predominantly talking to Gentiles. He's not talking to a Jewish audience. So why in the world would he say, brothers, our fathers pass through the sea? Here he is applying, watch what he's doing here. He is applying the history of God's people to a people who were not God's people by blood. 
And he is ascribing the role of Jewish forefathers to a Gentile audience. He's talking to this Gentile Corinthian audience and is saying, our fathers. That's remarkable. You see, this is the point that needs to be made. There is not discontinuity when it comes to the subject matter of the people of God in the first administration and the people of God in the second administration. No, there is continuity of the people of God throughout the scriptures. God has always had a visible people. Paul's making the point here that these Israelites that he's talking about over in Egypt were no less the people of God than you are. Which is why Paul is soon, that's the reason I want us to read all the way to verse 12 of chapter 10. He soon is going to start laying out these warnings, isn't he? He's going to unload stern warnings to the Corinthian church. And why is he going to do that? Why is he going to unload these warnings to the Corinthian church? It's precisely because they're the people of God. Precisely because the whole basis and the whole fact that he can address them that way is because they are the people of God. That's why it shouldn't surprise us when we get to 1 Peter that we have the Apostle Peter even using language when he's addressing the New Testament church, right? And what is it that Peter says? You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are a people of God's own possession. Where did that language come from? That's the same language that was used in ascribing the people of God in the Old Testament. Shouldn't surprise us. Because there's continuity, not discontinuity. (laughs) One minister once said, one of the dangerous pages in all of scripture is the one with the least amount of words on it. It's that little bitty page that is inserted, that is not not inspired, that is inserted between Malachi and Matthew. In most of our Bibles, there's a big old white page between the two that says New Testament on it. It's a dangerous page because it lends itself to one thinking there's a discontinuity between what comes before and what comes after that page. But what we find even here in 1 Corinthians 10 is a continuity of the people. of As much as can be said about the differences in the first administration and the second administration, the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's continuity here on the subject matter of God having a visible people that he has separated for himself. Now, according to our text, what is true of the people of God? Well, note Paul's repetition. Did you pick up on it? Notice he's trying to make a point here, and he does a really good job of it. He says, are you unaware of all our fathers were under the cloud? All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud of the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All ate the same spiritual food. He repeats the word all several times because he's trying to make a point. And he does a very good job of making it. Whatever can be said about this baptism, whatever this baptism was, that the people underwent in Exodus. It was experienced by all of them. It was experienced by all of them. There wasn't one of them left out. There wasn't one of them that said, now little Joey, you need to stay over here. The rest of us are going to walk through these two walls of water. From the infant to the 100-year-old, all of them were baptized. Why? 
Because all of them had a visible relationship to the covenant of grace. All of them were a distinct people. All of them were visibly separate from God's enemies, counted as insiders in the covenant. Enough said about that point. Let us consider now the blessings of baptism. Not only is there continuity that we need to consider, but also the blessings. Look at the first four verses here. We find that there's just these grand blessings of God's people. He says, in addition to the pillar of cloud and fire, which tangibly pointed to God's favorable presence. In verse 3, it says, all of them ate the same spiritual food. That's referring to the manner that God provided his people in the wilderness. What blessing to be tended to by God with such care. Verse 4, they all drank the same spiritual drink. That's referring to Moses striking the rock in the wilderness when they had no water. And water started gushing out of a rock? But who was it for? It was for God's people. What a blessing. God providing for this special people. And along with all these blessings is the baptism of God's people through the Exodus event through the Red Sea. What a blessing that they all experienced. You see, Paul uses baptism of God's people in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now watch this. He uses the word baptism here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 because he's addressing baptized Christians in Corinth. He's addressing baptized Christians in Corinth who are no less the people of God and no less the recipients of great blessings. And he wants them to be reminded of those many blessings that are yours, that God cares for you as a people. In Romans chapter 4, Paul speaks of circumcision as being the sign and seal of the covenant of grace. And that cannot be underestimated. Because earlier in the book of Romans, Paul makes the statement that the true Jew is not someone who has the outward sign of circumcision. And so Paul anticipates a challenge to that. Can you imagine a Jew hearing that? That you're not a true Jew just because you have the sign of circumcision? They're thinking, wait a second. If having the sign of circumcision does not mean that I'm a true Jew, then why in the world do I have it? What advantage is it for me to have it? And Paul anticipates their line of thinking on that when he says those words. And so Paul actually says this in Romans. I'll quote it. What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And this is his answer. Much in every way. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, he says. Much in every way. Blessings. Blessings. In Romans chapter 9, Paul with great anguish of heart because he looks at his Jewish brethren according to blood because they were Jews in blood. And he is just in anguish. In fact, it's one of the one portions of Paul's letters where you get a window into his soul. Because he says, I anguish. I am. He's, he's utterly laid flat in tears over his brethren by blood, these Jewish brethren. They don't believe on Christ. And he, he says of these Jewish friends of his, 
To them belong the adoption. To them belong the glory. To them belong the covenants. To them belong the law and the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. What blessing! What blessing! And I'm anguished of soul because they have all of these many outward blessings that are affiliated with being the people of God, but yet they do not believe in the Christ of the covenant. They don't believe in the righteousness of God that comes through Jesus Christ by faith alone. And so this begs a question then. If circumcision, watch this line of thinking, if circumcision was packed with such blessing in the first administration of the covenant of grace, how much more is blessing upon those who are marked with baptism in the second administration of the covenant of grace? If there was blessing back here before the coming of Christ, Can you imagine for a moment the magnitude of blessing that is associated with those who are a part of the people of God in the second administration of the covenant of grace? It's much greater. The magnitude of blessing is even greater in the second administration. Greater blessing. Greater blessing. That's why the New Testament goes on to say there's greater condemnation if you don't believe. Why is there greater condemnation over here if you don't believe upon Christ? Because there's greater blessing. There's more exposure. There's greater light. There's there's greater knowledge of God and His saving purposes in Christ Jesus. You're on this side of the resurrection. You have greater knowledge of the gospel. You're not over here in the types and the shadows. You're in the reality, baby. And if you don't embrace Christ here... There's greater condemnation if you reject him. Though certainly there is condemnation here if you reject the coming Messiah. But the reason there's greater condemnation is because there's greater blessing. And that's what Paul's saying here to the Corinthian church, whom he's very concerned about. Very concerned about. Yes, baptism is the initiatory right into the visible people of God, engaged to be the Lord's. It is a sign of All of the blessings of the covenant of grace in Christ. It's a sign of being grafted into Christ. It is a sign of regeneration. It is a sign of the remission of sins. It is the sign of adoption, of new creation, resurrection life. It is a sign of walking in new obedience. All of the benefits of the covenant of grace are seen in this sign of baptism. The promises are yours. What blessed promises. Notice our text says that all were baptized into Moses. That's interesting language. They're being baptized through the cloud and sea, but they're being baptized through the cloud and sea is constituted as nothing less than they're being baptized into Moses. Now, immediately after the Exodus event, we find one of the more important passages that you find in the book of Exodus. Because it's right after the Exodus event that we read these words. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and believed in his servant Moses. By being baptized into Moses, they became, as it were, disciples of Moses. This baptism inaugurated the congregation into this relationship as disciple 
placing them under obligation to recognize Moses' divine commission and to submit themselves to his authority. He was indeed the mediator of the Old Covenant. As the narrative unfolds, Moses becomes a central figure between God and the congregation. And there's many examples of him standing in the breach between God and the people. Now you may recall from 1 Corinthians that we're in now in the very early chapters of 1 Corinthians. We've actually taken this up in one of our discipleship classes. You get a hint into what 1 Corinthians is all about and what Paul's dealing with at Corinth. Because in the early chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with these quarrels, these conflicts between people because someone is saying, I'm of Paul. Another one's saying, I'm of Peter. Another one's saying, I'm of Apollos. All of these great names in the early church. And listen to what Paul says. It has been reported to me that there is a quarreling among you. Some of you are saying, I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas or Peter. Or I follow Paul. Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? You see what Paul's doing here? He is equating this this idea of being a follower of Apollos or a follower of Paul or a follower of Peter as being baptized into. He says, are you saying you're a follower of Paul? Were you baptized in my name? You see, to be baptized in my name is the equivalent of becoming a disciple of me. He equates following and discipleship with being baptized into someone's name. The scripture says in Romans chapter 6 and in Galatians 3, you have been baptized into Jesus Christ, being identified with the mediator who is the one that Moses pointed to all along. In effect, this means that you are disciples of Jesus Christ and you're not disciples of the world. You're disciples of Christ. You're not a disciple of the Egyptians in their case. Now Ezra this morning, this little baby boy, as he becomes publicly marked as a member of the visible church, he has the blessing of being a disciple of Jesus Christ And therefore, he is going to be discipled. You see. There's so many practical implications to this and applications to this that we would be here for the afternoon. But I want to highlight just a few of this, particularly as it pertains to a covenant child being visibly marked into the visible church. The word of God is a covenant document to a covenant people about God's covenant salvation. Through Jesus Christ. Jesus understood his own death as a covenant. So if you, if, if you think that covenant's something other than the gospel or other than Jesus, even Jesus at the Lord's table says he identifies his death as a covenant. He understood his blood being shed on the cross as a covenant dealing. This boy, Ezra, will have the blessing as a disciple to be instructed in the word of God that is a covenant document to a covenant people. He's going to be treated as an insider, not an outsider. So he is not essentially an object of evangelism. He is essentially an object of nurture. And there is a difference. 
He's not pursued as one that's out there, outside of God's blessing, outside of God's covenant. No, he's going to be nurtured in the covenant, nurtured in the word, instructed in the word of his God, you see. He's going to be taught to pray in a manner that Christ taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father who art in heaven. There's no other way to pray that's acceptable to God than calling upon God as Father. If Ezra is just a viper in diapers, he's an outsider. He's an enemy of God. He has no business taking this prayer upon his lips. But because he is an insider, because he is in effect a disciple and being discipled, he is taught to pray those words, my Father who art in heaven. When he addresses his pastor by name, he's not just identifying his pastor by a label. That's truly his pastor. When he says, this is my church family, it's not just people he associates with. It's not people he happens to hang out with. It's truly his family. These are shepherds that are called to shepherd his soul are truly his shepherd. Not daddy's shepherd. Not mama's pastor. Not my parents' church family. My church family. My shepherds. My pastor. See, that's insider language. What tremendous blessing. To say baptism is not a blessing and has no consequence is to not understand a whole lot of the Bible, including 1 Corinthians 10. Now, finally, one might say this, and perhaps this is where your mind has raced already. Those promises that you listed off while ago, grafted into Christ, regeneration, adoption, remission of sins, resurrection life, does that mean that when the water is poured over the head of this child, that those realities magically become his? Is there a work in the working of baptism that's being done magically? The answer to that is this. Keep reading. Look at the next verse. In verse 5. But... With most of them, God was not well pleased. And their bodies were scattered out in the wilderness. And he goes on and says there were many who engaged in sexual immorality and idolatry, etc. And these are examples to you. Paul is worried about the Corinthians and he is warning them with the greatest, the deepest warnings he can give them. And he's using an example from God's people of old to move their hearts in faith. The water of baptism is not boogie dust. It's not some magical water that creates the realities, all of these glorious realities of salvation immediately into this child's heart. Don't you remember that these baptized Christians in Corinth were puffed up, self-reliant, self-confident, abusing their privileges. And they thought, surely we could never be disqualified from the race. Surely we could never be disqualified because we've got circumcision. 
We've got the sign of the covenant. So we can live like the devil and still enter the presence of God. We can live like we want to and engage in all types of idolatry without harm and without worry. Because by golly, baby, we've got the sign. You know what that is? That's presumption. I almost entitled this sermon, Baptism and Presumption. Because that's what Paul's dealing with here. Some might say, today, I've got my heritage. Those blessings become mine automatically, don't they? My mama and my daddy are churchgoers, so I'm okay. I'm baptized. I've got the sign of the new covenant. I've got the sign of the covenant of grace administered to me. So I'm automatically safe. I engage in church activities and I have several religious experiences, so I have nothing to worry about. Listen to the message that Paul is just screaming out to the Corinthians. You need to hear this. Paul has given the church of the Corinth a stern warning about presumption. He is in effect saying to them, you presumptuous, baptized, New Testament people of God, you need to heed something about the presumptions of the old people of God in the first administration. You have the sign You have the sign of distinction. You have the sign of consecration, yes. You have many blessings that come that are associated with being a part of the visible people of God. But if you do not believe, if you do not embrace Christ, love Christ, live for the glory of Christ, then you have not responded appropriately to what this whole thing's about. Having the sign of of baptism and having all of these multitude of blessings associated with being a part of the visible people of God, the whole point of that is to drive you in faith to Jesus Christ. And if you've not embraced him, you've missed the boat. You've missed what all these blessings are about. They're to drive you to Christ Jesus. You see, many may wonder why water is used. There is an importance to the use of water here that that the Lord has instituted. Among them is that the New Testament likens the waters of baptism to the waters of the Red Sea as well as to the waters of the Noahic flood. Both water events. And what you have in both of those narratives is what we call a redemptive judgment. The waters of Noah. You had the waters of judgment that came down upon who? Everybody. Without distinction. The water came down upon everybody. But God made a distinction. And those that were in the ark, they floated on what waters? Those same judgment waters. But those waters lifted them all the way up to the Mount Ararat to safety. The same waters of judgment that meant judgment upon God's enemies meant salvation and redemption to God's people. It's a redemptive judgment. For one party, the waters spelled judgment. For the other parties, the waters spelled redemption. Same thing in the Red Sea. What happened at the Red Sea? The waters came crashing down in judgment upon the enemies of God, but it's those same waters that spelled redemption for God's people. What were the waters that the people walked through? The same waters that spelled judgment for the enemies of God. So one party, it spelled judgment. For the other party, those same waters spelled redemption. That's called a redemptive judgment. Our Lord Jesus Christ came into this world. 
And he took upon himself sin that was not his own. And he declared that it was necessary for him to go to the cross of Calvary, bearing the full weight of God's wrath and condemnation for my sake, bearing my sin and its consequences. And it's about his death on the cross that Jesus uses these words in the Gospel of Luke. Listen, Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus refers to his own death upon the cross as a baptismal event. You know why? Because it's a redemptive judgment event. His baptism was taking upon himself the crashing waters of God's judgment so that his enemies could have a safe redemption. Jesus underwent that judgment side of the waters of condemnation so that you and I might float on top of them as it were or go through them as it were. It spells for us redemption. It's spelled for Christ's judgment and condemnation. Hence, Jesus saw his own death as a redemptive judgment by referring to it as a baptism. He was treated as God's enemy so that you and I might be treated as God's sons. So brothers and sisters, the waters of baptism first are a sermon about the Redeemer's experience and not first a story about the Redeemed's experience. Baptism first preaches the sermon about the Redeemer before it preaches anything about the Redeemed. It first speaks of Christ's experience of undergoing a true baptism of judgment, redemptive judgment, so that you and I might experience the washing of regeneration, the washing of our sins, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This baby boy, Ezra, will never, never be pointed to his baptism as a grounds of his salvation. Never. Right? Never. He's never to take hope as a grounds of salvation that he was baptized. No, he will be pointed to the one that his baptism points him to. His baptism, after all, is a sign, right? When you and I come up to a diamond-shaped sign that says mountains that way, how much folly there would be in you and I confusing that sign with the substance. That sign is the mountains? No, that sign is a sign. It's pointing to the mountains where you then turn and you go up and you go skiing. But the sign's not the substance. To confuse the sign with the substance spells disaster. So Ezra will be raised to be pointed to the Christ of the covenant. That to which his baptism points him all along. To embrace Christ by faith. And little Ezra, as you embrace Christ by faith, you will not undergo the waters of judgment yourself because Christ will have already undergone the waters of judgment for you. But my little child, if you don't embrace Christ, if you reject the Christ of the covenant, those waters of judgment you will be the recipient of. You will undergo the just judgment of God yourself. Oh, I plead with you, boy. Turn to Christ. Embrace Christ. That's the gospel, you see. 
That's what baptism is essentially about. It's pointing to the promises that as one embraces Christ Jesus, one indeed will be saved. Paul uses the language of uncircumcision in his letters, talking about Jewish people that had circumcision, physical circumcision, but they rejected Christ. He says, your circumcision has become an uncircumcision. The same brethren can be said of baptism. One who has baptism and all the blessings that come with it, praise God for it. But one who doesn't embrace Christ Jesus, their baptism becomes an unbaptism. Many Israelites did not enter the promised land and it wasn't because they were circumcised and it wasn't because they weren't circumcised. It was because of unbelief. So I just implore us, I know I've gotten long-winded here, this is... This is great stuff. We're talking about the heart of the gospel here, aren't we? But I implore all of us, going with the title of our sermon that was actually chosen, respond appropriately. If you're not a believer and you're baptized, please be reminded this morning what your baptism's all about. It's pointing you away from yourself. If you've never been baptized... You're about to witness the gospel sermon preached to you visibly. If you're a Christian, embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember your baptism today. If you're struggling with doubt, if you're struggling with confidence, if you're struggling with who am my identity, am I in Christ, out of Christ, if you're struggling with assurance. Did you know that your baptism is designed to speak loudly to you whose you are? Your baptism, what does it speak to you? You're in Christ. What does it speak to you? Your sins are washed away. What does it speak to you? You have new life living in you by the Holy Spirit. Who are you? You are God's. He has saved you unto himself. Your sins have been completely washed away. Live in the freedom of forgiveness. And just as the water washes away dirt from your skin, so also are your sins fully washed away. The visibleness of baptism, let it speak to you, brethren. Baptism is God's sign to you. Indeed, we learn much from this passage. We learn about the continuity of baptism, the blessing of baptism, and the appropriate response of baptism. And it is our prayer that this little child about to be baptized this morning will never remember a day that his heart was not embracing the Christ of the covenant of grace, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will always be pointed, first and foremost, to his Savior's baptism of what he accomplished for him. And may as he is implored to believe and embrace Christ, Let us be implored the same this day. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the glorious gospel of redemption. We thank you that you've condescended to give us signs. We're so weak. And while your word is enough, you've condescended even further to give us signs of it. Father, may you speak even through the sign this day. 
for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, people of God, receive now not a cursing, for that is what Jesus took upon himself. We get the blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace both now and forevermore. Amen.